Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it out and turn to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2. I know I sometimes take it for granted, probably fairly often, but this really is an amazing privilege that we have. We are so blessed to be able to gather together in freedom and open God's book and hear what he would say to us. That is not the experience in a lot of places in the world. On Palm Sunday, just about two months ago, April 9th, a man named Michael Regeb, a deacon of the St. George Church in Tanta, Egypt, took his wife and his three-year-old daughter to their church's Palm Sunday service. And rather uncharacteristically, he wanted his wife and daughter to sit in the very back of the room in the last bench. His wife... Sarah was surprised at this because normally they would sit with him in the front row, but he was insistent. Looking back, she says, I know that it was God's will. Michael went to the front of the congregation where he was in charge of the singing that day. At about 10 minutes past nine, there was a huge explosion. In Sarah's words, smoke filled the church, it became dark. I was screaming the name of my husband and rushed to the place of the deacon choir where I hoped to find him alive. What I saw on my way to him was horrible. The bodies of dead church members and pools of blood. Then I saw my husband. He was just lying there like the others. Gone to heaven just like he had sensed would happen. Sarah and Michael had been married for four years. Despite everything, she says, God has put comfort, peace, and great grace in my heart. My husband lived a life of heaven on earth. I am happy for him. He is now in front of the throne of grace. He is there with Jesus. He is there with Jesus. A total of 49 people were killed in two Palm Sunday attacks in churches in Egypt. If Jesus were to speak to his churches in Egypt, what would he say? What would he say to his churches who've experienced similar hostility in places like Nigeria and Syria and Eritrea and Iran? And what would he say to churches like ours who know so little of such suffering? Well, the fact is, he has spoken to all of his churches. 
And he has a message for us if we will listen with ears to hear. So today, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11, where Jesus speaks to a suffering church. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this church in Smyrna, unlike most of the churches that are addressed in the first two, three chapters of Revelation, the seven churches that Jesus speaks to, this church has no big issue of disobedience that they need to repent of. But they do have big problems. Uh, They were experiencing a lot of hostility in their community, probably from, from Romans and Greeks and Jews. The Romans used to call Christians atheists because they didn't worship the popular gods of the day. But here, apparently, it was the Jewish opposition that was especially intense. Even though Jesus was Jewish, even though all the apostles were Jews, even though really all the first Christians were Jews, uh, many other Jews rejected the message of Jesus. And some of them thought that it was their duty to God to just shut the Christians down, to shut them up, and uh, put an end to it. Uh, Much like the Apostle Paul, if you know his story, before he encountered Christ, before he became a Christian, very hostile, very antagonistic toward uh, the Christians. So these were people who thought they were serving God. And this is true in many parts of the world today. There are very sincere people who think they are sincerely serving God by opposing Christians by opposing the gospel of Jesus. Uh, What happened in Egypt on Palm Sunday is just an extreme example of that. But Jesus calls these opponents a synagogue of Satan. Now, don't misunderstand that. He is not accusing them of being Satan worshipers. That's not what it means. What it means is these people are doing Satan's work even if they don't intend to, even if that's not what they think they're doing. How are they doing Satan's work? By slandering the Christians in Smyrna. And slander, false accusations, 
uh, words to tear down, to accuse. That is what Satan does. That's, that's how he works. Uh, Satan, the name means adversary. The term devil means slanderer. And that's, that's his job. I mean, that, that's what he does. He accuses, he lies about, he tears down God's people. He's a slanderer. This, by the way, is why gossip is such a terrible sin. Because when we gossip about somebody, we are doing Satan's work, whether we intend to or not. That's usually not what we intend. Well, it's probably never what we intend, but that's what we're doing because that's the work Satan does. He beats people down, he tears them down with his lies, with his distortions, even with truth. He doesn't use truth the way God uses it. He uses truth to beat down. And that's exactly what gossip does. It tears people down, even if what we're saying is technically true, because it's not intended to build up, to encourage, but to, to harm reputations, to you know make sure people know how bad that person really is, or what they really did, or whatever. But see, if we're followers of Jesus, it's never our job to tear anybody down, ever, but to build them up. Ephesians 4.29 might be just one of the most convicting verses in the entire Bible. Don't let any, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We could stop right there. We've all had plenty of conviction. Let's say amen and work on it. Now we got more. So here, here these Smyrnans, these Christians in Smyrna, are being slandered, probably accused of being blasphemers. And the fact that they were unpopular, the fact that they were being criticized, probably explains why they were poor, uh, the same thing happens today in parts of the world where it's not acceptable to be a follower of Jesus, parts of India, uh, many parts in the Muslim world. You become a Christian, and it will probably cost you your job. It can cost you everything you have. So, so, try to envision this. Things are really tough for the Christians in Smyrna. Things are really hard. And Jesus knows. He knows. And he cares. And he speaks to them. He has a message for them in the midst of their suffering. He says, I know. I know things are bad. Don't be afraid. They're about to get worse. Probably not what they wanted to hear. I don't know about you, but I know when I'm hurting and I've, maybe I've experienced a series of adverse circumstances and life feels difficult, I find myself easily thinking, okay, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough heartache. That's enough pain. Because, see, I think I know what's best. <laughs> I think I know what's best about what needs to happen in my life in order for me to be truly happy. And what I think needs to happen is that this thing needs to stop right now. 
Jesus seems often to have a different opinion of what needs to happen in my life to bring about his purposes, including my ultimate happiness. And so I'm thinking, okay, Lord, that's enough hardship. That's enough. And he says, no, not yet. No, I want you to trust me more. I want you to stop putting your hope in temporary things, in short-term happiness. I want to expand your capacity for eternal joy. The fact is, it's just not true that if you really trust Jesus and love him and seek to obey him to the best of your ability, that he won't let anything really bad happen to you. If you think there's a limit to how much bad stuff a Christian can experience in this world, you need to read your Bible more carefully because that's not what it says. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Trials are not strange, they're normal. So being loved by Jesus and suffering really hard things often go together. And see, if we forget that, and I forget it all the time, if we forget that, what are we doing? We're setting ourselves up to be disappointed and frustrated and angry and bitter and joyless. So what should we do? Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. He says, be faithful. Be faithful. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. And I will give you the crown of life. In other words, be faithful. And I will make it worth it. Trust me. Hold on to me. Hold on to what I have promised. When it looks like I don't care when it looks like I don't love you very much, when it looks like I don't know what I'm doing, keep holding on. Just keep holding on and I will get you through it and you are going to be happier than you ever imagined. Or to say it another way, don't be fooled by appearances. Appearances can be so deceiving, and we see that right here. The church in Smyrna appeared poor, and Jesus says, no, no, you're rich. These critics of the Smyrnans 
thought they were doing God's will, but they weren't. Satan is going to cause these Christians to suffer intensely. And it's going to look like he has the upper hand, but he won't. And death, death appears to be the last word, but it's not. Again and again and again, what appears to our eyes to be real isn't real. Now, what I mean by that, I don't mean that it's like an illusion or it's a hallucination or something. No, the experience is real. If you're financially poor and it's hard, that's a real experience. And, you know, if you ever get thrown in jail for following Jesus, that's a real experience. Or if terrorists set off a bomb in your church and your loved ones are killed, that's a real experience. And it's horrible. But it's not the ultimate reality. There is another. It's not the last word. There's another. There is a, an even greater reality that is going to transform all of our experiences, no matter how horrible, into lasting joy if we're faithful to Jesus. And that's true, even if the awful things we experience don't seem all that awful compared to what some others experience. Because, you know, most of us, we're not losing our jobs. We're not getting thrown in jail. We're not being terrorized for following Jesus, for believing in him. Not yet. But even if you're not experiencing anything this severe, it can still hurt. It does still hurt at times to follow Jesus, to be faithful to him, to live life his way. It can cost you friends. It can create division in your home. It can create tension at work. It can lead to the breaking of a relationship that you really want and you really care about, but you finally realize that that relationship is incompatible with who Jesus is and how he wants you to live. So all suffering, all suffering is real, even if it's not as bad as somebody else's. So the Spirit has a message for all of us here, whatever we're suffering. And here it is. When it hurts to follow Jesus... Hold on to what he says is real. I think that's what it means to be faithful to him. Hold on to what he says is real. What he says. What he says. Don't be fooled by appearances. Hold on to what he says is real. So what does he say is real? Okay. First, hold on to who he is. Hold on to who he is really is. Jesus is real. In fact, he is the ultimate reality. It says here, he says here, I am the first and the last. Sometimes I've, I find it almost 
funny to hear somebody say, Jesus never claimed to be God. How many firsts and lasts are there? Who says this? Who says, hey, by the way, I'm the first and the last. I'm before anything else. I'll be there after everything else. And I am greater. I rule over everything else. That's what that means. He rules over all things, even death. He says, I'm the one who died and came to life again. Who can say that? Jesus. In other words, I defeated death, so hold on to me. Hold on to who I am because I rule and I am for you. I am for you. I have promised I will give you life. I have told you death cannot ultimately harm you. I will transform death into life for you if you trust me. You know, it's the big lesson of this book of Revelation. Jesus wins. He wins. And his people win because he wins for them. He is for them. So no matter how scary things get, and things can get very, very scary in this world, no matter how scary things get, no matter what the enemy does to us, he can never overrule, outsmart, or outmaneuver Jesus, ever. So, if Jesus allows him to hurt us, And we see here that sometimes he does. He allowed the enemy to hurt the Smyrnans. But even if he does, you can be certain of this, that whatever, whatever Satan means for evil, Jesus will always mean for your ultimate good. Always. Even if you can't possibly figure out how this could possibly work out for your good, ever. So, evil always has an expiration date. Suffering always has an expiration date. Jesus' promises never have an expiration date. He will have the last word, and the last word will be a good word that transforms every word before it. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And Paul went through a lot of horrible stuff. He was even executed by the Roman government. But he said, hey, no matter what, Jesus is going to rescue me and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So I'm good. So even when what you're going through seems really hard and is really hard and it makes absolutely no sense to you, doesn't appear to have any good purpose whatsoever, hold on to Jesus because he's real. And he'll get you through it. Second, hold on to real riches. Church in Smyrna looked poor. People looked at him and said, what a sad group of pathetic losers. They got nothing. 
And Jesus says, no, no, you have everything. You have me. You have the kingdom. If you belong, you know, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you realize you're going to inherit basically everything. You're going to inherit the kingdom of God. You have wealth beyond your imagination. And that's real. No matter what your bank account looks like. So hold on to that. Because that will keep you from being a slave to earthly wealth. So if you're driving by and you see some incredible mansion, you think, man, that would be awesome. I live in such a dump. And you find your heart just being led to that that coveting and that disappointment and that discouragement, don't do that. I mean, I don't know what you're going to live in in heaven, but believe me, that mansion will look like a shack. Don't feel deprived if you don't have much earthly wealth. Lay up, as Jesus said, lay up treasure in heaven, because that you'll never lose. Whatever you have in this world, you're going to lose. Not some of it, all of it. Not maybe, Absolutely. Either you're going to leave it or it's going to leave you. But what you lay up in heaven, you will never lose. The Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom in Jesus Christ. So that's real. Hold on to real riches. Third, hold on to real righteousness. Now, the opponents of the church said, you guys are awful. You are evil people. You're going around saying that somehow God became a man and died a horrific, shameful death on the cross. Cross was reserved for the worst criminals of all. You saying God did that? That's shameful. That's evil. Not only that, they're going around telling everybody, nice people like us, nice religious people, that that we actually need Jesus to die on a cross for us to make us right with God. Do you realize how offensive a message that is? Have you ever thought about that? The message of the gospel, before you get to the good news, you've got to hear the bad news. And the bad news is that you are so out of it with God, you are so not right with God, that the Son of God had to go to a cross and die to make you right with God. Whoa. But it's so liberating when you finally understand it and believe it, that he would do that. So they're, you know, these people are like, you guys are hopelessly stupid or you're just plain evil. You're not righteous. You're not right with God. You're dishonoring God. But Jesus said this, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Why is that? Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Staggering. So if people call you stupid or evil for believing in Jesus and saying that's too simple, nobody could die for us, nobody can make us right with God, that's too easy, just hold on. Hold on to what he says is real righteousness. Trusting in him alone, not in your merits, but only his. That's real. And then hold on to real life. 
hold on to real life. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you life. He who conquers will not be hurt at all by the second death. To all appearances, death is the worst thing that can happen to you. But it's not. Jesus said this, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Being destroyed in hell is infinitely worse than physical death. Because it means... It means being separated from God and from everything good forever. That's what Jesus calls the second death. And in chapter 20 of this book, it's described like this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. Now that could be a symbol. This book is full of symbols. Maybe the lake of fire is a symbol. But if it is, we should take no comfort in that as if that means it's not as bad as it sounds. Every every description we have of eternity without God, without forgiveness, without love, without joy, without friendship, without peace, without hope, without any good thing. Every description we have of eternity without God is unimaginably bad. It's terrifying. So this symbol, if it is a symbol, it stands for something. And what it stands for is bad beyond our comprehension. It's eternal death. Now, have you ever heard anybody say, I wouldn't want to go to heaven, that'd be boring. I want to go to hell where all the party is. What a lie. There's no party in hell. The party is with God. Eternal life is unimaginably good. You know, forget the stupid image of sitting on a cloud strumming a harp forever. That's ludicrous. It's so good. It's good in ways we can't even fathom. And it's going to, that goodness of it is going to transform. Okay? Think of this. It's going to transform every hardship we experience into something glorious. So think about that the next time, you know, you're tempted to wallow because it's just so bad, and it might be, it might just be awful. But remember this, that there's going to be a time when that awfulness gets transformed into something glorious. Look, that's not my opinion. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this (laughs) slight momentary affliction, 
And if you're in the middle of it, you're thinking, what? Slight? Momentary? Yeah, not by experience, by comparison. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It doesn't mean our sufferings don't hurt. They hurt a lot. It, it just means they don't begin to compare. They don't even come close to the good things that are coming for those who hold on to Jesus. Eternal life is real. It's real. And our problem is we forget that. We forget about it. We're too busy being distracted and thinking about the next thing down here. We've got to remember it. Jesus said this, John 6, 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So look to the Son. Do you find this description of eternal life, or uh, eternal death, a second death, do you find that scary? I hope so. I, I hope we all do. If you're afraid of an eternity without God, look to the Son. And if you never have, believe in Him. Put your trust in Him. Ask Him to give you life. And He will do it. And hold on to Him. Hold on to Him. That's where we're going to find the comfort and hope and joy, even when things are really hard. And you know one of the biggest... Biggest privileges and biggest jobs we have as believers, as a church, to one another, is to help each other hold on to Jesus when we feel like we just can't. Hold on to Him. Help each other hold on to Him. Hold on to what He says is real. I'm going to ask us to bow in prayer. And I just want to urge you, if you have never called out to Jesus and asked Him to give you life and to forgive you and to make you right with God, yeah, believe in something as foolish as a crucified Savior who rose from the dead. Put your trust in Him. Ask Him to give you life. If you're going through a hard time, ask Him to help you hold on to Him. And I also want to ask you to pray with me for Sarah and three-year-old Priscilla who lost their husband and father on Palm Sunday. Let's pray together. Lord, I've lived most of my life in a bubble of comfort and wealth. And it's so easy not to think about or remember what it's like in so many other places in the world. And yet, I have suffered and everyone in this room has suffered or will suffer. And you have said, Lord, that following you is a hard road sometimes. But that road leads to life. And so help us remember that. And if there's anyone here who has yet 
to ask you for that. I pray that today will be the day for them. And we pray for Sarah and her daughter Priscilla. We pray for them in their grief. Thank you that you have by her own words given her hope and joy and peace. Thank you for the knowledge they have that Michael is with you. And we pray for our suffering brothers and sisters in Egypt and Syria and other places. We pray that you would help them hold on to Jesus. Help us remember to hold on to them in prayer and lift them up to you. Thank you. You who are the first and the last. You who died and rose again, Lord Jesus. We put our hope in you. Help us hope. Help us hold on to you and what you say is real. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.